Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. We've been in Genesis, um, and, and this is four chapters that I'm covering. And um, so I'm only going to read a little section of that. Otherwise, that's all we do this morning is I, I just read those four chapters and say amen. So, um, so let me tell you where, what, what happens in this story. So the Bible starts, you know, God makes, uh, makes us, makes man, makes the creation. It's awesome. It's paradise. We screw it up. We walk away from God. Um, the earth is not flourishing. Civilization is not um, flourishing. And God makes a promise in Genesis 3.15 that he says that he is going to, though the evil one will nip at the heel uh, of the offspring of the woman, that the offspring of the woman will crush uh, the serpent, will crush evil uh, itself ultimately, that this is what God is going to do. He's not going to abandon his creation. He's going to redeem it. Uh, And it tells us in Genesis, he's going to do that through one family. And uh, that family head is Abraham. Abraham's not a special guy. God chooses him. Uh, He chooses him out of a pagan, uh, idol-worshiping culture. And uh, um, uh, he makes promises to Abraham. And then uh, one of them is that he'll have many offspring. And Abraham has uh, a son, Isaac, And then Isaac has a son named Jacob. And we're following this family as we go through the book of Genesis. We're looking to see God fulfill that promise he made in Genesis 3.15. He's going to redeem the earth. He's going to redeem his creation. He's going to redeem people out. He's going to have an eternal family. And he's going to work through this one uh, family. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now Jacob has 12 sons, right? And he has 12 sons through four different women. Two of those sons were through his favorite, Rachel. And, um, um, and they are the 11th and 12th sons. And one is named Joseph and one is named Benjamin, right? So here's the Joseph story. He's his dad's favorite. He's the 11th son, but um, his father, um, Jacob, favors him over all the other, gives him this beautiful coat that, that manifests his his being selected as the head of the family, given authority over all his other brothers. This is sort of upsets the whole cultural apple cart, the whole rule of primogeniture that the, that the oldest has this position in the, uh, in the family. And the brothers hate Jacob, and that's not um, aided by the fact that Jacob um, tells them his dreams, that he has these dreams that all of them are bowing down to him. Um, oh, they just love that image. And um, so when they get the opportunity, they attempt to murder their brother, um, um, Joseph. Um, I say Jacob. I might, I'm going to say Jacob, Joseph, Judah. I'm going to say all the names at the wrong time. You figure it out. So, um, so Joseph is this, is this braggadocious uh, little twerp and um, um, flaunting his, um, his uh, uh, father's favoritism and uh, his brothers loathe him and they actually um, make steps to kill him. They seize him, they beat him, they throw him into a well. Ultimately, 
Um, Judah steps forward and says, why don't we sell him to these traders that are passing by, um, this caravan of traders. Uh, then his blood won't be on our hands, plus um, we'll make some money out of it. And they do, they sell him, uh, Joseph, to these Midianites. They tell, of course, his father that he's dead. Um, he's been killed by wild animals. Uh, but Joseph then, the most improbable thing happens. He's, he goes to Egypt and he is sold to a powerful man there named Potiphar. He uh, is just a slave, a servant, but he rises to power in Potiphar's house. Then he's betrayed by uh, Potiphar's wife who accuses him of sexual assault, which um, wasn't uh, true, but he's thrown into prison as a result. Then he rises in the prison to a position of authority. He... Um, uh, he interprets dreams of some of the prisoners. And then Pharaoh, the head of all Egypt, the most powerful nation and empire on the planet at the time, has dreams too. And it comes to Pharaoh's uh, uh, knowledge that uh, there's somebody there in prison that can interpret these dreams. He brings Joseph. Joseph interprets the dreams. The dream is that there's going to be a worldwide famine for seven years. You're going to be unable to grow anything for seven years. But before that, there'll be seven years of plenty. And uh, Joseph this um, um, masterful um, organizational skills and leadership organizes the entire nation of Egypt to, to save uh, grain for the seven years of plenty so that they can not only feed themselves, but they can feed um, much of the world for the seven years of want. You got that? So that's where we actually come to, that's all review. <laughs> Amen, let's go home. Um, <laughs> Now we get to chapter 42, which is the new part uh, of what we're covering. So what, what happens to um, Jacob and his sons? They're hungry. They're starving, right? Famine has set in. And so they say, um, let's go to Egypt. So Jacob sends his um, sons to Egypt. Look at what it says in the first verses of chapter 42. When Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt, he says to his sons, now look at this family. This is a dysfunctional family. Look at what he says to his sons. Why do you look at one another? <laughs> Have you ever had a bunch of boys in your house? Well, you understand that. Why are you looking at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. I mean, essentially saying, do something. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Why only 10? He has 11. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. What does that tell you? That uh, Jacob knows that Joseph didn't uh, just fall prey to a wild animal, that his brothers killed him, right? His brothers did him in. And they'll do the same to Benjamin if they're given the chance. And he's not about to send Benjamin uh, with them anywhere, Right? Because Benjamin has taken Joseph's place. Benjamin is his favorite. Benjamin is slated to be the family um, leader. So they all go to Egypt. The 10 of them go to Egypt. They actually end up in an audience before Joseph. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize Joseph. This is 20 years later from selling him off. Um, and um, Joseph accuses them of being spies. Foreign spies who have come into the land to take advantage of uh, Egypt. They, they, um, they announce their innocence. They beg for their um, innocence. Joseph throws them all in jail. 
And then he tells him, here's the deal. I'm going to give you grain so you can go home with it. And I'm going to um, set you free. Um, but to get any more grain, you got to bring um, the youngest one. Because they had told him that uh, we're not spies. We are um, uh, from a father. And that father had 12 sons. And one of those sons is no more. Uh, but one of those sons has been left at home. So Joseph says, here's the deal. I'm going to take one of you. It happened to be Simeon. And I'm going to put him in prison. And he's going to be there till you come back with that youngest boy. You're not going to get much grain until you bring that boy back here. All right. So they go back home and they tell their father, if we're going to get adequate grain to deal with this famine, we've got to go back there with Benjamin. And what does Jacob say? Not happening. No way. Not ever. Well, two years later, um, hunger has a way of softening your resolve, right? And um, so Jacob says, all right, go, go back to Egypt, take Benjamin um, with you. So they go back to um, Egypt. They're before Joseph again. They still don't uh, recognize him. And uh, he's dealing with them and uh, he gives them uh, grain and he sends them on their way back home. But he has his servant hide a valuable silver cup in the bag of Benjamin. And then when the brothers all depart, he sends his servants out, uh, does Joseph. Um, to apprehend them just on the outskirts of town. And they get out there and there's the drama because they search each bag, you know, from the oldest to the youngest. They get all the way down to Benjamin and, um, and uh, he has proven to be the thief. He has stolen this uh, silver cup and, um, and all the brothers can't believe it because they've been protesting their innocence, right? None of us have done this. You, church, you uh, accuse us of being thieves and stealing from you. None of us have done it. And lo and behold, it's in Benjamin's bag. And, uh, and they're tearing their clothes because this is the worst thing that could happen. This is everything that uh, their father feared would happen, right? That uh, Benjamin would be lost. They can't go home without Benjamin. So they, they are, they're brought back to uh, appear before Joseph. And Joseph says, simple enough, Benjamin, uh, now it's Benjamin's life that I'll take. It's Benjamin. Um, that's going to pay the price for this uh, dastardly deed, right? It's a test, isn't it? Joseph is testing them, right? He is putting them in the same situation they were in 22 years earlier, where they have the life of their hated little brother, in a sense, in their hands, right? Their father's favorite, just like happened with him. And they can all walk away and go back to Jacob and they could say, Joseph stole from, um, from, from the guy in Egypt. I mean, you know, what did I say? What's his name? Benjamin. Benjamin stole from the guy. Hey, this is a lot of talking. Give me a break. <laughs> Benjamin stole from the guy in Egypt. It's just the way it went. You want to get mad about it? Be mad at Benjamin. But that's a, it's a test. So what do the brothers do? Guess which brother steps out of all the brothers? The one who's become the family leader, his name is Judah. And Judah steps out and says, take me instead. My life for Benjamin's. I'll be your servant. I'll be your slave. I'll bear the punishment. It'll kill my father if we, if we went back there without um, Benjamin. Got it? All right, now we're going to read the Bible. So stand up, will you? And I'm um, going to read this passage from there, starting at the 30th verse of chapter 45, chapter 44, 30th verse of chapter 44. And these, this is uh, Judah speaking. 
Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy. To my father, I said, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. The household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Why do you think? Yeah. <laughs> we are in deep weeds now, right? The guy we sold into slavery is the boss. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all the house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. God made me the ruler over Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. Amen. This is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Spirit of God, open our eyes to see. To see your glory. To see the wonder of your love. Spirit of the living God, break us, melt us, fill us, use us. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Amen. Be seated, please. The big reveal. We know this passage has a big reveal in it. It is not the big reveal, though. That, that is what the passage is about. At its essence, it's not about Joseph revealing himself to his brothers in this drama. It's about a much bigger reveal than that. You know what it is to, to seek the big reveal in your life. You're, when you're growing up, you know, that, that big reveal uh, could be, um, where am I going to go to college? Um, what am I going to study uh, when I go to college? Um, what is my vocation going to be, right? Uh, who am I going to marry? Uh, how many children will we have? Um, where will we live? These are the big questions, right? You come up to these points in your life and you have to answer um, these questions. And then as many of you can attest here, right when you think you got all the questions answered, 
comes this thing called retirement. <laughs> and you have this big reveal. What, what, where am I going to live? And what am I going to do now? Um, um, and yet these are, this is not the big question in life. None of these are the big question in life. The big question in life is, where did I come from? Who made me? Is there a God? Can you know him? Who is he? Who is he? You know, scientists in this James Webb telescope that NASA has put out into deep space and it's projecting images back to us like we've never, never has the human eye ever seen what, um, what um, they're finding in the, in the deepest recesses. Uh, and we don't know how far it goes beyond what they're finding, but um, where essentially they tell us, and, he, and even in these pictures, when I looked it up, they, they were labeled, uh, here is creation. This is the creation of the world. We're, we're seeing it. No human being has ever seen um, this before. Scientists who are looking at these things have to ask, who did this? Who made this? Who's the author of this? They're, they're, I'm told that there, in the scientific community, there are more scientists who are Christians in the field of astrology than any other field. Because the thing about science that leads so many of them to faith in Christ is, um, is, is they're logical, right? They know that something can't come from nothing. It can't. There has to be something. There has to be a prime mover. There has to be a designer. I met a guy recently who said, all my life I wasn't a Christian because I was a scientist. I gave my life to science. I studied science. I believed science and what science had to offer. But I had one big problem that always gnawed at me, and that was dirt, he said. That was dirt. It was somebody made this, something made this world. And, and my de declaration that there was no God was directly contradicted by the fact that there was something. And something has to make something. It's like the disciples, you know, who is he? Who is the creator? Who, who made me? Remember when the disciples are fishing on the Sea of Galilee, a great storm blows up, the boat's being swamped, they're bailing, they're not having much success. And what's Jesus doing in the boat? He's asleep. And, um, and so they wake him up. You remember what they said? Master, don't you even care that we perish? And Jesus looks into the storm and he says, hush. And it's sea and the storm go quiet. And then the disciples become really afraid. And they're saying to one another, who is he? Who is in the boat with us that even the winds and the waves obey him? This is the big, this is the big reveal that has to happen. This is what the whole Bible is about. It's revealing who made us. That's, that's the big reveal. Dan Allender's an uh, author, um, psychologist, um, great man, great life, great ministry. And um, just the other day, I was heard um, saying when he was 18 um, in his house, his uh, uh, dad was asleep taking a nap in the bedroom. His mom was downstairs in the kitchen. And uh, for whatever reason, he went up into the attic of their house, was rummaging through some old boxes, and he found a picture, an old picture. And it's, and, and, you know, it's quizzical to him because uh, 
his mother was in the picture and as a very young child, it was clear that he was in the picture, but, but there was a man in the picture with him. Who was that man? So he took the picture down into the kitchen, showed it to his mom and said, yeah, help me with this picture. I see you, I, I see me, who's that? And um, his mother said, that's your dad. If that's my dad, who's that man in the bed, in your bedroom right now? And that's the first time he learned that that man wasn't his dad. That's a big reveal, right? When you discover who your dad is, that's the big reveal. Let's go there right now. Who is our dad? Who is the creator, right? You ready? You got a sermon outline? Here's the first. What are we going to learn about God in this passage? That's what the whole Bible is about. It's the big reveal. Who made this world? Who is he? He's the God who rules. He is sovereign. God's will, not the will of people, is the controlling reality of all events. God is in charge of everything. And everything that happens is advancing the purposes of God. Everything. All things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. So what happens when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers? We know they're guilty and they're distressed, and they're afraid. But Joseph says four times. Did you get it? It's right at the beginning of of chapter 45. Four times he says, God, 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 God. What does he say? God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me to preserve our people. God made me Lord of Egypt. God used your evil. You sold me, right? They sold him. What they did was evil. What they did was wrong. They tried to murder him. Then they sold him. They lied about it. Everything they did was evil and wrong. And yet Joseph said, God did it. God did it. God did it. God allowed it. God used it. Right? That's sovereignty. That's providence. That's the God who rules. That's the God who works through everything. God used your evil, but God sent me to accomplish what he promised to do. I mean, how improbable is this whole um, story? Joseph tells his brothers, all of you are going to bow down to me. No way. No way. Yet it happened. It happened right in this passage. They bowed down to him when they came before him in Egypt. They, They would have thought, no way we'll ever bow down to this brat. But God is the ruler What is said in this story, what's the chance that Joseph survives? He's thrown into a cistern, an empty cistern, but he does. What's the chance of uh, someone being sold to Midianites, ends up um, in Egypt in Potiphar's house and rises to prominence? No way. That doesn't happen. What's the chance that a guy who's charged with um, sexually abusing one of the most powerful men, the wife of one of those powerful men in Egypt, ends up rising to prominence. His life isn't taken from him. He actually goes to prison, but he rises to prominence. I mean, the whole thing. And he ends up being the ruler of all Egypt. And what's the chance of this? When you read the story, what do you have to say? God did it. What's the chance... That, it, that he's so successful in Egypt that they, they store so much grain that he can not only take care of all of Egypt for seven years, but he can take care of vir- virtually all the world around them, including God's um, people who are languishing in Palestine, right? What's the chance of all this? The only thing we can say is what? God did it. God was orchestrating it. God was at work. He's always 
at work. That's who your father is. Uh, he even uses evil to accomplish the redemption of his people. God's not the father of evil, but he uses um, evil. That's the worst thing about being Satan, right? Everything Satan does to attack the church only advances the purposes of God. Can you imagine that? Imagine hating somebody and then everything you do to try to destroy them only makes them stronger, better, and advances their purposes. When I was a, a young pastor, I remember someone told me, Satan is just God's boy. He just, whatever he uh, attempts to destroy only ultimately does God's bidding for him. God is in charge of even evil. God uses Joseph's brother's hatred, right? God uses a future Pharaoh's hatred. A future Pharaoh decides he's going to kill all the Hebrew children, remember? And Moses' mother has to put him in a basket, and that basket's discovered by Pharaoh's daughter so that Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house. God's always at work, even in evil. Pharaoh decides to destroy the entire Israelite people as they're exiting his land, and God opens the Red Sea and closes the Red Sea because he's always at work, right? He uses evil, and no more better illustration in the Bible than what? The evil pronounced on Jesus, the evil done to Jesus, which has accomplished what? A church full of people on a Sunday morning in 2023 who are followers of Jesus, right? We are evidence of this, that the evil of men does not stop God from accomplishing his purposes. Got it? That's who our father is. He rules. So, um, um, he's always at work. So I, Tim Keller, a mentor of mine, pastor in New York, probably the most prominent Christian in our country over the last number of years. When, when they had the memorial service in New York City, the first anniversary of 9-11, President Bush invited Tim Keller to, to preach there at that memorial service. Um, and the other day I heard uh, Tim say that um, his great-great-grandfather had four wives. And, um, and in, in the era in which he had been a great-great-grandfather, it wasn't like just divorcing them. That means they died. Wife number one, wife number two, wife number three, ultimately to wife number four. Three times, at least, he stood at a grave with a shovel, right? Bearing his own wives. Talk about adversity. And he had 17 children with those four wives, his great-great-grandfather. And Tim Keller said, I am the descendant of the 17th child of my great-great-grandfather. Now, who has 17 children, right? Who has four wives? Who perseveres through that? And yet the, the Tim Keller and the worldwide ministries had and the fruit it's born is all because wife number one died and wife number two died and wife number three died. If that hadn't have happened, there'd be no Tim Keller. God's always at work. Listen, somebody said recently, uh, John Piper said it, right? God's always doing thousands of things. We know about three of them, right? Uh, that doesn't stop us from giving God advice, right? All the time, telling him what he should do. But he's rules, he's in charge. Listen. When, when Seven Rivers Church was trying to get started, a small group of people are trying to start it. They don't have any money. Um, uh, they don't even have a denomination. They're trying to find a pastor uh, to come here. 
And they went through six, eight, ten people they brought here, tried out some they didn't want. A, a lot of them, the pastor would come and say, no, thanks, I'm not interested. Finally, they found one. They hit on one. And not only that, he was already a pastor in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church. He was already ordained. He already had experience. He was willing to come here to this little fledging um, group in the side of the way place. And uh, they said, yes. He said, yes. The marriage was uh, everything but done. Um, he actually had uh, relocated. He he'd, uh, purchased a house. In our system, there's this one little thing uh, where you have to actually get approved by the, by the denominational structure um, to do that. Well, that was kind of a done uh, deal. It's going to happen. I mean, he's already been through all the trials to become a pastor. And when he came before our local part of our denomination to get approved, they shot him down. And he kind of got shanghai He kind of got... Uh, it wasn't fair, um, and the, the, the little group starting the church were incensed, and uh, this guy was incensed, and, uh, and the, the future of this little thing, uh, trying to become a church, looked really in doubt. Now, you might say, well, God really does use evil. He brought you through that uh, <laughs> circumstance. But here's the story. Of course, I wasn't around. I wasn't in the picture then. They were just trying to find a pastor. I hadn't come on the scene. About three or four years later, that man who went back to the church that he was in, he went back to being in the ministry, back to doing what he's doing. Three or four years later, it was discovered that he had a series of extramarital affairs um, and he was drummed out of the ministry. What I'm telling you is God was at work protecting this place. Those people were mad when that happened. They were mad and, and he wasn't denied this job because anybody knew what was happening. They didn't have any idea that kind of nonsense was happening. But God was protecting this church before it even existed. He's always at work. That's who your father is. He's in charge. He's the ruler. That's why Christians in the midst of our crazy world can have a non-anxious presence because we don't run the world. He runs the world. We don't have to flinch, right? This is my father's world. Let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the what? God is the ruler yet. He is. He rules. That's your daddy. Second, who's God? Who's your dad? Not only does he rule, he reconciles. He is the reconciler. God had promised Abraham an enormous family that's going to bless the earth. But the family's future is threatened by division and violence. I mean, how does this family start? Adam and Eve have two boys. What happens? The older Cain kills the younger. Right out of the chute, right? This family is, uh, there's fratricide. How do we move from fratricide to fraternity, right? Because this family's not doing a very good job of it either. Abraham has two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And their division exists in this world today, doesn't it? Killings just this week in Palestine and in Israel. Hatred, animosity, the kin of Isaac, the kin of, uh, of Ishmael. Conflict. Well, then Isaac has a son, Jacob. Uh, and Jacob has a brother named Esau. And Jacob rips off uh, the family birthright from Esau. And so Esau wants to kill Jacob. I mean, this is quite a family, right? This is the promised family. This is the line of salvation. This is the family of Jesus. And now we come to Jacob's 12 sons and they've already done away with one of them in Joseph, right? 
So who's going to break the cycle? How is this a violent trajectory going to be unraveled? Um, this murderous hatred. It's unraveled by the forgiveness of Joseph. That's where it stops. That's where things change. Joseph doesn't seek revenge, does he? Joseph doesn't seek revenge. He reconciles with his brothers. God promises Abraham a progeny that will be servant leaders to bless the world. And Joseph is the first. A humble man at this point. Puts others first. Depends on God. Will not hold his brother's sins against them. Let me tell you something about who your father is. He loves reconciliation. Now some of you should start sweating just a little bit. Because you know where I'm going. He loves reconciliation. You know what Psalm 133, 133 verse 1 says? How blessed, how blessed when brothers dwell in unity. You know, the New Testament, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if anyone brings his gifts to the altar, and when he gets there to worship, he comes to God to worship, but then he, he remembers that he has something against his brother. And Jesus says, leave your gift and go reconcile. Because God, don't pretend you're reconciled to God when you're not reconciled to your brother. Because if you're not reconciled to your brother, you're not reconciled to God. So, so your worship is a sham if you refuse to reconcile. Right? God has committed us. What does it say in Corinthians? All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. God forgave us. God's the greater Joseph. He forgave his younger brothers and sisters. He forgave us and he's given us that same ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. And we'll only reconcile to the depths in which we understand that we have been the beneficiaries of God's reconciling love. So who do you need to reconcile to? Who do you need to be reconciled to? Listen, spirit of the living God falls when reconciliation starts to happen. And people go to other people and say, there's something wrong between us. I want to reconcile. A man in the church came to me one time and he said, I don't know if I can keep going to Seven Rivers Church because there's another member of Seven Rivers Church and I'm so angry at him. And I can't believe he would even say he's a Christian. I think the whole church is a fraud because he's a fraud. He said, uh, I hired the guy to come do some bathroom tile work in my house and he made an absolute shambles of it and uh, kept the money and, and wasn't able to correct it. And every time I see him, I'm just filled with anger um, at, at, the, at what he did to me. And uh, I can't forgive him. And I said... Um, can I ask you a few questions? I said, uh, are you a Christian? Oh, absolutely. I said, uh, are you a sinner? Uh, no doubt about that. I said, um, so do you believe that Jesus um, died for your sins? Uh, oh, yes, I do. I said, so in some ways then he died because of your sins. Yes. Do you, do you understand that your sins are the cause of his death? Uh, do you understand that you killed him? that you're responsible for his death. I get that. Do, do you believe he's forgiven you for that? I do. So let me get this straight. 
God forgives you for murdering his son, but you won't forgive one of God's children for screwing up your bathroom. How much do you believe that you've been reconciled to God? How much have you really experienced reconciliation with God if you will not reconcile with others who have injured you, others who have insulted you, others who have done you wrong? Now the Bible says, be at peace with all men as much as it is up to you. Now you can, you can make overtures of reconciliation and kindness and love and people can choose to hate you, distance themselves from you. And there's very little you can do about that, right? But you can make the overture. You can. It is not unusual for people to walk out of church and say something to me and they're telling me their story. They say, none of my children will have anything to do with me. And it's not like they say one of my children. When they say none of my children, I have to think, that's quite a coincidence, you know? None of them. I said, have you ever asked them why? Not in an accusing way, not in a defensive way, but he ever asked them to tell you why they want nothing to do with you and ask him to write it to you if that's whatever, however they want to communicate it and ask them that you're not going to argue with them about it. You're not going to cut them out of the will. You're not going to whatever. You just want to hear because obviously something has caused this breach and you're going to be a humble listener and you're not going to attack them and defend yourself. And I don't know how many times I've suggested that to people and people will not do it. I will not, I will not take the responsibility myself to seek re- reconciliation. Um, but this is what our father loves. He loves reconciliation. You know, Nelson Mandela had a, a, a horrible problem. He becomes the head of South Africa. South Africa has, of course, known racial separation, violence, And now he has to, um, uh, the black majority, angry, oppressed, um, the white ruling power with all the money and and authority through the years. How is he going to bring these two sides um, together? There's so much distrust. um, They create this Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And part of the deal was, if you've been done wrong, uh, um, here's how we're going to resolve this. If you are a wrongdoer, then you go and admit it. Of course, who's going to admit it if you're going to end up in jail or whatever? No, no, you go and admit it. And here's going to be the punishment is you have to face the people you have wronged, whatever you have done. And, uh, and they get to say whatever they want to you, but then that's going to be the end of it. There is a place you can safely go and admit your sins, your wrongdoing. We're going to reconcile as a country is what he's saying. A whole country has to reconcile. So one policeman went and told the awful deeds that he had done. And facing him was the woman whose family had suffered. His name was Vanderbach. And that woman, the truth and reconciliation, a whole courtroom full of people. He was done and now it was her turn. And uh, he had killed her son, shot him point blank, and burned his body. He had put a tire around her husband's head, you know, and bound him up and lit the tire on fire. Burned him to death. And now he stood before her, and this is what she said. She said, Officer Vanderbrock, I will forgive you, but I have three requirements. Number one, um, you must take me to the place where you burned my husband. 
And you and I will kneel down and we will scoop up the dirt so that I can give him a proper burial. And number two, you killed all the family I have. My, my husband and my son were it. You killed all my family. So two times every month, I require you to come to the ghetto and have lunch with me. And I will be your mother and you will be my son. Because I have love to give. And you stole from me the ones I wish to give it to. So I will gladly give it to you. And then here's the third thing she said in requirement. And finally, I would like Mr. Vanderbach to know that I offer him my forgiveness because Jesus Christ died to forgive. This was also the wish of my husband. And so I would kindly ask someone to come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr. Vanderbach in my arms, embrace him, and let him know he is truly forgiven. And as she moved across the courtroom to him to, to, to hug this man, as that man came towards her, he collapsed on the ground and the entire courtroom began to, you know, in, in tears. And the entire courtroom began to sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Who's your dad? He loves reconciliation. You should know that. You were the object of it. And last, who's your dad? He's the God who rescues. He loves to rescue. I mean, he, re he uses Joseph to preserve his family, the line of Jesus, the whole world too from famine. He loves to rescue. He loves to pursue what's lost and find it. He loves to enter into what's broken and fix it. He moves his family from famine to feast. They're not just starving to death and then they get enough food to survive. They go from starving to death to eating at Pharaoh's table, the most choice food in all of Egypt. What a picture. That's what he does for us, right? All the way from um, this world to the new heavens and the new earth and the table and the feast that we're gonna enjoy together. He loves to rescue. He rescues through the ark, right? He rescues through the Red Sea, his people. He rescues, he rescues a young woman and her young husband who have a newborn baby. His name is Jesus. And Herod wants to kill them. And so they have to run where? They reenact this story, don't they? They run to Egypt for safety. Our savior found refuge in Egypt. Don't you see the Joseph story is pointing, pointing, pointing us to the big reveal? Who is our God? He loves to rescue. You know, there was a diver in the Keys. I saw this story this week. Maybe you saw it online. He got separated from the boat that he was diving from. There were a couple of friends of his. He got caught in a current or something, got swept far away. Um, maybe the boat moved, I don't know. Anyway, he, he, he comes up, he can see the boat. They can't see him. They look, 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 look. It's growing to dark. Um, it's desperate. Uh, they notify the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard's looking. Hours and hours go by. Finally, they have to go back in. It's, uh, it's virtually dark. Uh, they get another boat that's got fuel. Um, and they head back out one last sort of desperate, uh, of course, really with very little hope of success. Um, he's been in the water for hours and um, 
And he spots the boat and he swims towards the boat and suddenly they see him and, and imagine their friend is dead and now he's alive and, and they're just overtaken with wonder and they start saying, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I watched it and I said, okay, they're taking the Lord's name in vain. They're not really talking to God. They're, they're making an expression that's common in our culture, right? And I thought, where does that expression get used? I mean, what does that mean when they're saying, oh my God? They're saying what? Something unbelievable that you can't even muster up the words for happened, right? And you can say it in, in grief, like something awful, so awful happened, there's no words for it. Like when the Twin Towers fell in New York and there were people standing there in Manhattan, what did they say? Oh my God, right? Something worse than we could ever envision just happened. And what were they saying on that boat? Something better than we could ever envision. Something we couldn't even dream. It just happened. Oh my God, indeed. So re rescue, let me finish it. God loves to rescue. And it's always unmerited. He, he, nobody, nobody earns his rescue. I mean, this passage is the perfect to tell us that because nobody in Joseph's family deserved it. These aren't choir boys. Simeon and, and Levi were guilty of genocide. They slaughtered the Shechemites. Reuben had incest with Jacob's concubine, his father's concubine, to try to usurp his position. Judah slept with and impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who was disguised as a Canaanite prostitute. And when he found her pregnant, he threatened to burn her to death. And then we have the 10 who sold Joseph as a slave. That's who God rescues. Can I tell you something about you? A friend of mine, Jack Miller, said once, you are worse than you have any clue. You would fit right in this family. You're worse than you have any clue. But you're more loved than you could ever even dream. The God who rescues, nobody merits it. It's just the size of his heart. It leads him to rescue you and me. And how does he do it? He does it by substitution. Joseph says, go home, leave Benjamin. Joseph wants to reconcile, right? But who's gonna be Benjamin's substitute? Who steps forward? It's Judah, the family leader. Take me, not Benjamin. My life instead of Benjamin's life. That's what the family leader does. I'll die. I'll go to prison. Not Benjamin. What do we call Jesus? The lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the first time in the whole Bible somebody offers their life instead of somebody else. This is the family of God. Can you see it suddenly emerging? This is the family of God from which Jesus, the Messiah, will come as your substitute. Because you owe God your life as penalty for your sin. But your older brother says, no, I will not leave them behind. My life, take my life, Father. Take my life, not theirs. You know what the big reveal is? It's the day you realize that God is your father.
And you have a father who loves you like that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. My Lord. And my God. Amen. Father, open our eyes that we might see that all of life is about seeing you. Where we go to college, who we marry, how many kids we have, where we retire. It's not the big question. The big question is who made us? Who is he? How do we get right with him? Lord, would you open our eyes to see your glory, your beauty. Do it now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.